Welcome everyone to this uh, Castle Bridge podcast. Um, I'm joined by Catherine and by Michelle Dennedy. Um, way we got a rock star moment here with Michelle in the room. Uh, we're going to be chatting uh, about a couple of things that, on this podcast, kind of circling back on some of the themes that we've been writing about on Castlebridge website for a while and our webinars, etc., over the past couple of months around data value and data strategy and the role of data and data about people in the future of the world. Um, before I kick off, I just want to welcome Michelle to the Castlebridge family officially as one of our emeritus advisors. So any of our, our clients who, who want to get some kick-ass insight from one of the pioneers of privacy engineering, uh, they can reach out to get in contact with Michelle through Castlebridge as one of our advisors. Welcome to the fold, Michelle. Thank you. I like how you kindly use emeritus rather than ancient and creaky. <laughs> uh, yeah, emeritus, it's a Latin word means we'll die soon. Uh, <laughs> call me now. I'm on my way out the door. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's, it's great that you were willing to accept the, the invitation to join the, the posse, um, for want of a better term. Um, again, we're, we're trying to extend our reach and expose our network to, to people who would otherwise not be able to talk to you directly. Uh, so it's great that you were able to, to to join with us, particularly after the fun we had in, in Dublin, uh, November before last, uh, where we caused some mischief. Was that already November before last? I yeah, need to get that's to November the... 2018. Time flies. Time flies. <laughs> so uh, what have you been, have you been doing since then? What have you been up to since then, Michelle? What are you, what, what are you currently working on? Yeah, so I was still um, in the big bowels of the big co. I was a uh, vice president and chief privacy and strategy officer for Cisco, doing data strategy there. Uh, when I came over to Dublin, I think it was NetHope was there at the same time too. So we were running around being do-gooders for the world and, and hanging out with my favorite Irish cousins in Castlebridge. Um, since then, I, I left Cisco in 2019. I still feel like it's March 2020, and it's like March 702 or something like that. Um, but I left in August, I think, of 2019 to actually lead a startup called Drumwave. It was an analytics and visualization startup. Um, you know, fun to do a startup right before a global pandemic and world shutdown. So um, this they're still in business, bless them. Um, but I ran them for about a year as their CEO. They were um, in California, a little bit in New York City, and mostly in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So, you know, we pretty much hit every hot spot for the pandemic. And, you know, it, it feeds into what we were talking about because it was really the intersection of data visualization as well as the ability to get our arms around what I work with you guys on all the time, which is some ethics engineering of just because you can, should you? And you know, most importantly for our conversation today, really focused on data value. And what I was building specifically for them was an audit product designed to really work on the elusive dual book accounting for data itself. So I, I ran them directly for a year. I'm still on their advisory board now and um, engaged both on the highest level of solving problems for data 
in a, a methodology that we call wicked privacy, using wicked problem solving methodologies for soft systems engineering, as well as um, going, when they go high, we go way, way, way low uh, with a new startup that I'm co-founding called Comply With Me, which really gets sort of a, a transitive value of getting policy into the code itself. And that's a baby, baby, baby startup. So I've been busy and, and helping you guys and advising your clients where I can and on strategy matters. And and also, you know, if, you, if you're going to call on a, a chief privacy officer, um, I have played one on TV and underground and everywhere in between. So I serve in that capacity for a lot of startups like Privitar and Layer 9 and, and um, um, I always forget there. It's not complicity. Ugh. Confidently, confidently. Oh my God. Okay. So well, there I go on my second podcast with their names, but it, confidently. It, 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 <laughs> you remind me of a grandfather. He always used to forget who his grandchildren's, what his grandchildren's names were as well. Um, but, but he loved us all dearly. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, you've definitely been been sitting back and doing absolutely nothing for the past few months, Michelle. That's good to see. Um, <laughs> it's amazing what you can do from you know the flight path between kitchen, bedroom, and studying. <laughs> indeed. So data value. What the heck is it? We, we've been chatting about it a lot. What, what's your take on data value and kind of coming from the privacy engineering world and, uh, and, and the CPO world, why should we give a nut about data value? Yeah, it's, it's such an important issue. And, and I think it bears repeating probably in every time you're, you're launching a, a new project or product um, to, to think about how value just like values, which you guys wrote a whole book about, it changes per circumstance. So the way I'll, I'll start the discussion is when I think about value in a business context, I'm thinking about the interplay of asset and liability. And an asset, according to the accountancy practice, is anything tangible or intangible that may provide a benefit to an organization. It's, it's that loose. So an asset can be anything that leverages. So things that you know, things that you trade, things that you build. And the, the converse is a liability can be viewed as an asset when unguarded, untended, ungoverned can turn into a liability, which is something that may or is likely to cause harm. So we think about dual book accounting almost as if it's a throwaway concept in the monetary currency side of value and valuation, but it's it's really a concept that's that's only a few hundred years old. It used to be as late as the 1920s when the big US stock market crash happened in 29 that a company that had the biggest bag of gold or silver, <laughs> a different concept, controversy for a different day, um, would the one who had just more in hand or in bank by the end of the quarter was a more quote unquote valuable company or commodity. What we've since discovered and, and leveraging dual book accounting is sometimes you leverage an asset for future use. You buy another factory or you partner or you have a supply chain or 
or you do things more efficiently. And so when I think about data and I think about data valuation, don't just think about, oh my God, we've had another data breach. You know, it must be Tuesday. We've had another breach and that's a loss. And why is it a loss? Because you have to pay your lawyers, you should hire Castlebridge to make your world better, you have to deal with regulators, you have to deal with PR, blah, 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 all clear liability risk. But what you haven't really recognized is that every day that you neglect data that could be building a better relationship, or you fail to resolve data that's just sitting around not causing you benefit anymore, it is, it is sliding into liability. So that's where um, it's sort of a convoluted, not elevator or a very elevator to a very tall building description. But that's how fluid I want you to think about data as an asset. Yeah, it's, it's like my years ago, I was, I, I, when I heard every time of big data and having worked with data for a long time in telco where big data was just Tuesday, yeah. Um, I, I coined the term morbidly obese data because most of it just sits around doing nothing and just gets bigger and bigger. Exactly. And, and it causes you a heart attack. Yeah. And, and data value from my perspective is, is understanding what you need to have in the organization that actually adds value and then getting rid of all the non-essential, getting yeah. rid of the waste. And data nutrition. It's like, what would be the most delicious data right now? Yeah. Catherine, what do you think? Well, I think it's interesting that uh, it, one of the first things Michelle talked about there was the avoiding of loss and you know, finding value in avoiding loss. You know, Dara and I have been talking about that in the data protection field for you know, risk management and you know, the, the easiest way for us to describe to clients where the value is in compliance is mitigating that risk of loss. But what I'm wondering is how can we also find the value in saying this is a positive benefit? Yeah, so this is where um, I've started to think about what I call the swimming pool metaphor. So privacy people right now, and I think security people too, would say, wow, look at that concrete hole. Woo, it's deep. It's, you know, it's a meter deep here. It's three meters deep there. And wow, someone might hit their head on the bottom of that thing. And then they problem solve of like, oh, should we, should we roll in some dirt and fill it in? Oh, wait, wait, we don't, want, we don't have enough dirt. Or wait a minute, what about this water thing? Oh, oh, we could put some water in it. And oh, but it's got bacteria in it. Oh, we could put some chemicals. I mean, obviously I'm talking about building a goddamn swimming pool. So you have to decide like, what is your objective in total, and it doesn't mean 20 years from now, but if you're building a swimming pool and you approach the swimming pool problem instead of a whole mitigation problem as a delight problem, you, you then start to look at different specifications. Is it for children? Is it a commercial pool? Is it for adult swimmers? Is it in a home? Blah, blah, blah. When you start to look at that, think about how innovative you're already thinking about the patio furniture and the barbecue that you're going to have as additional services around this pool. When you only think about the concrete hole and the possibility of people or animals falling into it, you have a very different approach. And so I think instead of just thinking about loss, think about if I had insights about a person without falling too, it's so easy to go into like, not too much, because that's creepy. 
but let's just for a moment assume that we're going to be proportional and we're going to be non-creepy people. What would I do if I knew what somebody was doing for exercise in the morning, what their body weight was, what their age was, what their goals were, um, and, and what do I know about, you know, what this person wants out of this transaction? It's such a fundamentally human and interesting and intricate issue that can deal with school data and health data and kids' data and financial data and insurance data and regulation and spying and creepy. Yes, 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 yes. But first, let's figure out what is that column of good look like? What is What do we think is going to be something that all parties, and this is where soft systems and systemic engineering comes into play and ethics engineering comes into play. We don't tell that person that your objective is to get to a 25 BMI. I don't even know if I'm, these are real terms. I'm just making them up. Um, and and you must do this or something bad will happen. Um, or you're getting married next year. And if you want any hope of squeezing yourself into this totally patriarchal, crazy virgin contest, um, not to be judgy, this is how you get there. <laughs> it's really hopefully instead saying, you know, I, I'm a business in fitness. And so I want my, my clients to have, you know, the smoothest journey to fitness as possible. But I also want them to be able to port some of that data back to their, their doctor's office to say, I've got morbidly obese data and other things. And what can we do about that to a different set of professionals? And so when we start to look at your data in, in terms of sort of ongoing potential value and values driven nuggets, then I think we start to, of course, each, each one, as soon as you say the value, you're gonna see that risk. You're gonna see that it's medical data and you're gonna know that let's go back into our, our concrete hole filling, but you're never going to fill in that concrete hole so high that you're gonna end up creating a tripping hazard. Or, or something that's not sustainable or something that now you've lost the narrative of the positive. So I think two things happen when you bring both sides of the balance sheet together. One, you're much more accepted into the fold of the proactive business makers or agency brokers. And so you're sitting closer and closer to that proverbial table during design. So you have a shot at actually building in ethics and, and mitigating some of the challenges and being there when things inevitably go wrong. And then you really do need to worry about, you know, cracks and pitfalls and bumped heads. Uh, I, I like your swimming pool metaphor, Michelle, because I come from the data quality background, regulatory data quality side, more uh, as much as I come from a data protection privacy background. When I hear that swimming pool metaphor, I immediately think, well, once you fill the pool full of water and you figured out what it is you want people to use the pool for, you got to start looking at the social norms and, so, and, and, and user norms that you're expecting the users of that pool to have. Uh, otherwise, you'll have unexpected things floating in the pool, and that may be acceptable or unacceptable depending on what that thing is. And you don't necessarily need the magic chemical that shows when you've peed in the pool. You might just be able to have the same quality improvement by having a sign that says please don't pee in the pool exactly and do you plow loads of chemicals in do you employ someone with a a, a nest to go and fish things out uh, or do you actually look at training people to understand well this is what you can do in the pool and if you do feel the need to 
add to the volume of water in the pool, you can leave the pool uh, to go elsewhere to do it. Yeah, and you that's something we all miss. Fly and attractive to do that too. <laughs> that that's the that's the thing I often is missing when we look at systems design, because people come from like from a technology background look at the, the systems with a small s. Yep. The the wonderful. Uh, anytime I'm, we've shared this, this, this similar sort of story where people say we're going to show you the technical architecture and we, we, we know in advance it's going to have a cloud somewhere on it, something that looks like an oil an oil drum and there'll be lots of lines pointing left, right and center. Um, and yes, from a technology perspective, that's a fantastic thing. But no one thinks about well, how can the users, inter how, how will the users, the, the knowledge workers interact with this? What's the customer experience going to be of it? And my boss in the phone company used to say that it's all well and good designing foolproof systems, but we hire idiots. <laughs> and you need to be thinking about how people will break things, uh, not just from a technical systems perspective, but also the, the, the big S of how this works in the overall system of things. Catherine, any thoughts on that? Because Michelle and I can riff on this all the time. You're here kind of as the token normal person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The systems and the knowledge of systems. You need people with a uh, you know various social uh, experience to figure out what how people interact with those systems. Uh, and so uh, again, you know, there may be some social norms regarding, for instance, showering before you get into the pool, and other people may not have those social norms. Uh, and it is expected in some, and it's not expected in others. But uh, I, I, one of the serious you know, downfalls we've seen in a lot of systems design recently is people who, oh, just didn't think of that particular issue. Uh, and so you need those people who will think of those particular issues um, and understand why those particular issues are likely to come up. So it's another type of value is, again, you know, knowledge and uh, understanding there. Yeah, it's so true. And it's, you know, and, and we do talk about this a lot. And, and well, I, two thoughts are swirling in my head. One is, I don't know if it was you guys that said it to me, but it's brilliant, whoever said it. Um, oh, no, it was definitely us, Michelle. <laughs> whatever it was. Um, the only organizations that, that use the term users are drug dealers and systems engineers instead of humans, right? It's like they're not patients. They're not even clients. They're just you know, users, those, those filthy users. And, and, it, and it's when you do take that systems approach, you think about things like if you want people to develop the norm, sure, you can train them. But if you have a, a outdoor shower right next to where the pool is and you point them to it, you are much more likely to have users that actually take and, and use the, and, and make the most of the, the controls that you put in place. I think that's thing number one. Thing number two is um, you can get really elaborate on all the usability stuff. And then suddenly you invite your, you know, your African-American friend over and she takes a look at you and goes, do you know how much money I spent on this hair? I need yeah. a shallow end so that I can enjoy this cool, beautiful thing. I am not getting my head wet. And it never crossed my mind. You got to yep. bring in diversity. You got to think about people, you know, or or someone of a different religion that really doesn't want to wear a, a string bikini. They'd rather have a burkini or something more modest. Um, so, 
I mean, we can, the analogy stretches to fit, right? Because people like to be cool in the summertime. But if you aren't looking at the realistic scope of users, how they would, how would they want to participate? And then how you're going to monitor things, you know, in that same, you know, pool analogy, are you taking CCTV cameras to avoid abuse of young girls in your locker room? Are you taking pictures of young girls in your locker room? It, the same control for one problem turns into, and this is why it's a wicked problem. So wicked problems, one of their core characteristics is every time, first they're never solved inherently, climate change, poverty, privacy will never be solved. But as you solve it, you inherently create more problems or challenges or wicked system issues. So once you've got the surveillance over here to protect from faulty ingress or nasty behavior, now you've got a stack of data to delete, destroy, share, proliferate, sell. And, uh -huh. and so this is how it goes. And this is why I love this practice as much as it makes me you know, elderly and, and emeritus-like. Um, it's never going to be done and it's constantly going to be evolving to fit the culture and cultures in which the data flows. And, and we're getting into this weird timeline where everyone wants to balkanize their data into you know, better here or better there. The reality is you've got to take that global cultural into account if you want to be sustainable in data. So on that note, Michelle, what sort of cool things are we seeing happening in the privacy tech space? An area that did not exist five years ago, really, but now there's startups aplenty and you're there's advising most of them, it seems. Ooh, yeah. I have been going around quite a bit. And if and if you are a startup, give me a call. I'd love to advise you. I'm not going to write your privacy policy for you. There are people much better at that than I am. Um, but I can advise you about your business and what it's like to consume uh, privacy technology. I think, as, as you pointed out, I did a study along with uh, a group called the Beacon Group about, uh, I want to say, circa 2015, 2016. And the specific interview-based research that we did was going around and asking as many parts of the C-suite, CFOs, CIOs, CIEIOs, and of course, CPOs, and, and saying, what tools are you missing? And then what tools would you buy today? And when we were just in the point of the passage and the sort of grace period of GDPR, most of the C-suite and many of the managers even were saying, I don't need your stinking technology. I need lawyers. I need accountancy firms. I need people with, with clipboards running around. I can't imagine anything this complex ever being automated or systematized or any other sort of magical word. So fast forward till the, the at least threat of fines under GDPR and other schemas. Um, and there have been criminal penalties in Mexico and other places for, for a long time. But now we're starting to see the desire to actually treat data privacy. Oh, I just made Sarah crazy. Data protection and privacy. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> when you mush them together, it's very Mark. And <laughs> so. I have mushed and I apologize. But when you put these things uh, together, um, now we've got the thing that was missing in innovation, which is a market. People who will actually lay down the cash money 
to, to sort of add to. So I think where we are in technology today for privacy is really interesting. About 10 years ago or so, we started to see ampersand privacy. So you'd go to the RSA security conference or Black Hat or whatever, and you'd see blah encryption obfuscation tool um, is good for security and privacy. Da -da -da. It wouldn't change functionality. There wouldn't be any discussion of you know role-based access to the data because of the data. But by gosh, you could jump into a little safe harbor and say this is no longer PII and therefore have at it. It's a party. So that was kind of the state of the art for a very long time. And I still talk to CPOs who are stymied by their own team on the security side because the security folks will say things like, if it's not legally required, it's not necessary. Or they'll say things like, I got this. Just tell me what's quote unquote sensitive. I'll encrypt it. And then we're cool. And my response to that is always, well, when is it going to get unencrypted? Oh, never. End-to-end -end encryption. And I say, well, then why aren't you deleting? Like, why would you encrypt if you're never, ever, ever going to use that data? Oh, we're going to use that data. Well, then where are you decrypting? And so you get into this, the reality of where the system is. Of course, people are going to see the data. Of course, it's going to get shared. Of course, it's going to be replicating like bunny rabbits across the data center and probably around the globe. So where privacy is today, I think the biggest players on the marketplace are still focused on the compliance, like what can I report? And I think we're, we're getting closer, but we're not quite at where those reports are directly correlated to the data. Right now it's sort of like there's data, there's clipboards with people, or there's a WYSIWYG form that you fill out and then a report pops out and it's supposed to describe the who, where, what, why in your data. I think where we're sort of moving up and down the stack is solving discrete problems. Having companies, um, Layer 9's an example of this. They're not mapping all your data all the time, which I tried to do at Drumwave. The only way you can do that is if you A, already know where most of your systems are, which is hard and pre-COVID, it was already hard. Now it's nearly, it's near impossible. And if you consciously load data set by data set by data set. So if you have a very strong data quality practice that has been well nourished and paid and has lots of DARAs running around, you're cool. If you're like the 99.99999% of other businesses, it's, it's a big task. So where layer nine looks at what are your biggest applications? Where are your biggest feeds? And where are things tending to go in and out of an organization? So from a privacy perspective, you're looking down and you're saying, okay, good. I'm, I have a bigger view of what I'm looking at. I have a higher percentage of sort of impact nutrition-based data that I'm actually using most to make critical business decisions. And I'm looking at the more popular um, sort of usual suspects for regulators, which are third parties. So you can see when things are going in and out of the organization and you can have very human conversations with how does your contract fit? How do your other controls fit? You know, do you have enough training to, to get by now? Um, and, and so on. And so I think that's where we're starting to head is we're starting to see 
large data sets being curated, you know, layered privacy protocols. I was just, just talking to, to J- Jason Dupree's over at Privatar this morning. And, and I said, you know, as much as the VCs want to hear platform, and if you are starting a privacy startup, they want to talk about scale. They want to talk about platform. They want to talk about automation. And that's adorable. You talk to those VCs and you take their money, girl. Then you come back to us and we'll help you solve a problem. <laughs> and what I want you to do is solve a problem and not the problem because it's a wicked problem. So that's where I'm seeing um, very high level compliance stuff pointed upwards to the C-suite, a little bit for the director level of people who, who are sort of taking big swaths of risk out of this and a teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny drop of people who are really running after what is the valuation and the value of data. Cool. So that's pretty much what we're seeing as well. Is lots of interesting startups looking at applying machine learning to finding data and applying machine learning to audit, to supporting or automating some of the processes around privacy compliance. But they're all running into the wonderful problem of people need to understand the data, understand the context of the data, and that requires messy humans to be in there somewhere doing stuff no matter what. Well, your CEO doesn't know what data they have your cio doesn't know what data they have so if you've presumed that for your solution you're going to run into a massive etl and quality problem before you even start solving the problem so just understand that if that's what you're peddling go in there with a realistic view of how long is it going to take to get to the place where they start to solve the problem that you say that you can automate because machine data has a funny way of not working if you don't have quality data yeah. It kind of um, gets back to Dara's third law of data quality, that you automate a crap process, you'll get a lot of crap really, really quickly. O'Brien, O'Brien's <laughs> third law of process automation, automating a bad process badly just makes bad shit happen faster than you can ever hope to clean it up. I love this. And it goes back into like, see, this is why we work so well, because I've always said, because you guys are much more like gentlemanly and ladylike than I am. I've always said more shit just is diarrhea. It doesn't make a more valuable pile of shit. Um, different problem at speed. And, and I think, it, you know, if we're talking about, you know, how are we valuing things, doing things badly faster is not progress. If you have a value-based mindset, if you have a risk-based mindset and you're, and you're weighing the scales of activity, you can see why people are so excited about like, oh, an automated PIA, huzzah, huzzah, I have more activity to report. Well, if your goal is to produce more activity, you have indeed achieved some. It's not data protection. It ain't privacy. But you'll have a job tomorrow. That's that, not bad. That, that's an interesting point, Michelle. We, we've chatted about this before on, on, on non-recorded calls, about <laughs> the importance of data literacy and the, yeah. the stuff that... Some of the tools have made it easy to report certain things and certain organizations have encouraged people to report certain things because they're not thinking about the data. And my favorite one is organizations that ask, well, how many DPA should, should people be doing? Yeah. What's, like, our, what's our target number? And we kind of go, well, this, you should be doing all of them, obviously. Um, 100% of everything should have a DPIA. Yeah, I, I actually, without naming usual suspects. I have been witness to things that have been presented to public company boards and it, it there was a line item for the amount of said form filled out 
and when I saw it, I, I said, my God, are these our, our partners, our vendors, our customers filling out this stuff? Oh, no, no, no. These are people who work for us. And I was like, any number under 100% says that you gave an obligation to a senior leader and you're crowing about doing 50 to 80% of those things. Do I get that if I'm acting as your tax attorney? Is this something that we can like use for like people doing food quality? Like 50% of it is rancid, but hey, progress, baby. Of course not. But only the bottom half is rancid. The top half is fine. <laughs> yeah, just, just eat the top, you know, just don't worry. I mean, it's it's back to, you know, and and we know we've been talking about this forever. Um, and we love a good Tom Redman. I love the metric. Give me a metric all day long. But if your metric is tied to activity, then you'll have an activity-only metric. If your metric is tied to what is the business process I'm trying to help, curate, add value to, speed up, create efficiency for, these are all great verbs that should anchor what it is that you're measuring, why you're measuring it, and help you to say, you know, constantly querying those messages and saying, you know, the number of people trying to attack your firewall says a lot more about the hacker's automation skills than your protection. Tell me how you've thwarted this. Tell me how you know if they're interacting. I mean, so there's there's a different way of looking even in the more mature fields of security and, and other accountancy types of things when you're looking for fraud anomaly, for example. So Kathy, we're doing, we're doing a lot of work on data literacy at the moment with people. Is that something we're seeing, this idea of not pe people not understanding what it is they're actually measuring? Are we seeing the princess bride effect in data literacy? <laughs> We are to an extent, but I think we're also seeing uh, the if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail effect. And we're also seeing you know, the ongoing observer effect of, of you know, what you measure, what you look at changes behavior. So, well, we really should figure out what we're trying to look at and measure. Yeah. yeah especially with machine learning, like the more you interrogate one system, if you're ignoring the other 90% of your systems, great. <laughs> You'll never get more, more than 10% good because that's all you're looking at. Well, every large Irish family has one kid, that went one kid that went to university, one kid that became a priest or a nun, and then the rest of them we don't care about, right? Um, and that's the way we need to measure things. Um, <laughs> I guess that's so, me. I'm, I'm kid number three. <laughs> what, what's next for this data world, Michelle? What do you see coming down the pipeline as the next wicked problem we're going to have to start solving? Yeah, well, I so I'll give you deeply biased views based on my own things I'm looking at, I'm more biased toward. Um, and, and I think they are the extremes in the middles. I want to see a true experienced privacy professional sitting on public boards of data sensitive companies. And those data sensitive companies aren't just social media, because even if I sat on those boards, would they want to make a change based on their current business model? I don't know. But I want to see Sainsbury. I want to see, um, you know, Hermes. I want to see people that are actually selling goods to people. I want to see Peloton 
having a CPO on their board reporting directly to their CEO so that their chief salesman, the CEO, is informed by data and responsible for reporting results to somebody who's actually supervising. And I think to get there, that's why I really started gravitating. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Lee is a fellow that I worked with when I was at, at Dremwave, and he was the one who was teaching me about um, anti-nuclear proliferation and how they used wicked problem solving to get disparate parties to the table to actually be effective. And, and while none of those people can really tell you exactly what they did, the world did not blow up. And so they were successful. That was a very good metric. And so I think looking at things like an ongoing issue that will never be solved because the context changes inherently, because the people change inherently, that's something I'd love to train every board around the world on, every government on how do you actually look at this problem? What's your short-term win? What's your long-term win? The middle problem is these great tools that are coming to solve discrete business problems. So just because you've bought one privacy solution, you're not really done. You're going to end up like security having a collection of these guys. So look at the big IDs and the one trust and the privatars and the layer nines as a stack. Do you have something to meet the needs of your strategic stack rather than I can get one provider, one lawyer, one accountancy firm and be done and cover it in money? That's It's not going to work and it's only going to cause frustration and heartbreak. And then the final final is like what I've been really working on this summer, which is getting the developers and the project managers some tools so that they can actually communicate with us on policy side and bridge the divide between policy and practice all the way down to the code so just simple straightforward things nothing really huge here <laughs> shattering well the good news is like think about how big these security conferences have gotten they're like giant football fields full of vendors doing stuff in privacy you know, I, I've, I, I just sitting off at the cocktail bar. Yeah. I mean, we can all sit around in the corner and I think it's great. And, and I'm, and I'm thrilled for all of those entrepreneurs that are taking a risk on this stuff, but we need more innovation, not less. We need, I, I want to not walk into a venture capitalist and say, but there's this. And, and if you walked into an ad tech venture capitalist, there's 30 of this is, and it's a good thing. So we need more. We need really, in, in addition to data literacy, I want to see actual privacy officers and data protection officers becoming data literate, becoming curious. Is the answer correct? You don't have to be an engineer to understand if you're being stymied or bullshit. Is that a term? Is it, it, is now. it is now. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That way back when, very early on in my career in the phone company, I actually qualified as an Oracle database administrator, so I would know when I was being lied to by IT. Yeah. And that's how I wound up doing this data thing. Um, cool. Well, this has been a fun chat. Um, <laughs> Catherine has been yeah, uncharacteristically good. silent throughout. <laughs> I think I silenced her. We were talking politics before we got on the phone, and I think I depressed her. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but at least um, I had lots of fun stuff to listen to here. So before we close, is there anything else? Any other anything else you're doing in terms of you got your fun thing that you're working on, your own little thing? Where is that at? Are you now 
doing the VC rounds or are you trying anything different to try and get it off the ground? So we're trying to figure out if one of these um, Kickstarter or Indiegogo people will have us. So I'm building something for the developer community. And right now I'll give you the teaser that it's called Comply With Me. It's um, C-O-M-P-L-I with dot me. Um, you'll see that it's a one-page website right now. But what we want to do is launch a community edition before the end of the year so that developers can actually start playing with the, the code and seeing if it's helpful to them and iterating so that we can get this into production in January that so it can go into the hands of policy people as well as uh, development shops. And so I'm, I'm very excited about it. I'm, you know, if we have enough customers that have been sort of preliminarily excited, we'll end up going the VC route. Um, if not, this is something that needs to be in the hands of as many developers as possible, I think, to really grow up as a standard, not the mm. only but as a way of doing things, using things that we know, you know, I've been talking to the great Alan Woods and begging him not to retire. Um, I'm going to lose that battle because his wife gets like 25 votes and I get like one, one millionth of a vote, but using the stuff that worked in the fifties, in the sixties, through giant deployments of technology throughout you know, a couple of world wars that we've suffered through. There's a lot of knowledge that we have about quality, about massive data at scale, about what goes wrong when humanity concentrates its data into the hands of a few powerful people. And I think if we leverage that sort of stuff, we'll start to see a lot more innovation here, whether or not it's VC backed or whether it can just independently grow. Well, it's an interesting model, Michelle, because we've seen something similar in the data data privacy or the data quality space uh, a decade and a half ago, nearly two decades ago. Companies like Talent, yeah, forgets Talent started off as an open source data profiler. Uh, Atacama had an open source data profiler, and eventually those yeah. those companies grew yeah. up, and now they're horrendously expensive, and their open source offering isn't as good as it used to be, in my opinion. But if you pay extra, you get their cloud based platform, and it's actually pretty good. And let's not I talk about Informatica. That would be nice. <laughs> but I think it'd be, it's great to see innovation. I think of all the people I know who can get this stuff done, you are one of the one of the top brains in the world on this, Michelle. So you can take that uh, as a compliment, heartfelt. And I'm thrilled that we're involved and we're we're able to collaborate on these these journeys together. It's it's going to be fun times. Yeah, I always love working with you guys. It's always you know you, you bring the technology, the humanity, and the humor, and I love that. Humor? Who said we brought humor? I know. We're just funny looking. <laughs> just funny looking. Okay, well, Michelle, thanks a lot for your time today. Um, this podcast recording will be produced and will go out sometime towards the end of this week. Uh, we'll probably do it as a special edition of our podcast because it's it's gone on slightly longer than I thought uh, in terms of dropping it into our main podcast, but we can, uh, we, we'll definitely be, be promoting it and pushing it. And uh, welcome to the Castlebridge family as one of our emeritus advisors. Thank you. <laughs>